Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. We're working through the book of Hebrews together. And uh, would it help for you to have that passage open? This is not the clearest passage in the whole world, so I think it'll make more sense if you can follow along and, and look at the verses as we're talking about them. And as you're turning there, uh, I want you to, to consider, I, I don't know about you, but when I read the Gospels, you know, the stories of Jesus' life, I find it um, almost impossible not to conclude that, you know, the disciples were just idiots. They really were. They said the strangest stupidest things at the wrong time. They didn't get it. But you know, there are times when I read the Gospels and I I do feel sorry for them. Because even though what Jesus said was of course true because he's Jesus and it was entirely predicted in the Old Testament, he still says things to his disciples that were foreign, so foreign to their experience and their way of thinking that uh, it would have been tough for them to swallow. And I think the toughest thing for the disciples to swallow was probably when Jesus, you know, he's walking along with them, they're sharing life together, and he says to them, it's to your advantage that I go away. I mean, think about that. Think about how strange that would have sounded. I mean, imagine you're in their shoes, uh, and you have this teacher, and you love him, and he loves you, and your life is being impacted by his message. And yes, he says the most perplexing things, but yet at the same time, life still finally makes sense with him around. And then he's going away. For your sake. Huh. Does that make sense? It seems hard to believe that Jesus went away for the sake of the church when there would seem like there were so many advantages for him staying right where he was, like him hanging around on earth after he rose from the dead. I mean, imagine what the church would be like if Jesus was still here on earth. Wouldn't that lend so much more credibility to our message? Here, let me tell you about Jesus, and you can go visit him at this address. Actually, he'll be in Washington next week. You know, He could have done that, and one day he will. But right now, he has chosen to go away for our good. Think about that. I think that challenges some of the assumptions that we make about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. We assume instinctively, at least I do quite often, that it would be far better if Jesus were actually with us. We want a Jesus that we can touch, a Jesus we can rub shoulders with. A Jesus we can see with our eyes. And if we can't have that, we want as close as we can get to it. For example, I heard of one woman who, after she poured herself a cup of coffee in the morning, would then pour Jesus a cup of coffee and and talk to him, pretending he was right there with her. Or think about the popularity of the books about near-death experiences where people talk about actually interacting with the Savior. I think we assume that proximity with the person of Jesus equates to a greater spiritual life when Jesus actually said just the opposite, that it was to our advantage for him to go away. In one sense, he is with us to be sure because he has sent his Holy Spirit. But the personal experience of Jesus is something that we we don't have right now. 
And that, my friends, is to our good. Friends, have you factored this truth into the shape of your devotional life with Jesus? A question to ask is this, I think. What does it look like to have a relationship with a Jesus whose absence is to your advantage? What does a relationship look like with Jesus in which it was better for him to have gone away? Well, the passage that we're looking at today in the book of Hebrews, I believe will help shed some light on this important question. Uh, Listen to Hebrews chapter 8 as I read it. Now, this is, as I said, not the most plain uh, passage in um, all of Scripture. I think that's because the author just assumes that you have the Old Testament practically memorized, which I don't, so I have trouble with this passage. And but nevertheless, I, I think we can uh, understand it as we go along. Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest... He's talking about Jesus here. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it was necessary for the priest also, for this priest also, to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to this pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is Better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been there would have been no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And I will be merciful towards their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. When speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us to understand this passage. Lord, there are many things here that that might be obscure to us. And yet we we see here that it is speaking of Christ in such a way that he is infinitely glorious and attractive. Lord, we pray that we would understand him and our lives would be impacted by him and we would know what it is like to relate to him as he sits at your right hand, right now, ministering to us. We thank you for his ministry. 
and we pray that we would learn as much as we can about it so that we can benefit from it even more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you see how this passage clearly talks about Jesus having gone away? He says, we have such a one as this who is our high priest, who is seated in heaven. It also says that if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. That's why it is better for him to have gone away, to have been in heaven. That is to our advantage. And this passage explores the impact of him having gone away. I think we see two things here in this passage. We see well, two things that make him a better priest, having gone away. Well, one, he, he is a better priest. We see that. So we see he's a better priest. And two, we see he mediates a better covenant. So I have two points. Sorry, I don't have a, an outline for you this morning, but two points. You can remember that. Write it on whatever you want. Two points, a better priest and a better covenant. So let's start with him being a better priest. I love the fact that the author here makes it so uh, clear what his main point is, right? The main point of what I am saying is this. Perhaps you would like it if I did that more often, right? The main point of the sermon is this. I know that was confusing that I said, not what the author of Hebrews said, of course, just me. But here's what I'm trying to tell you. Well, maybe I'll try to do that more often. The author here is giving us his main point. But, but notice, and this is just a side point here that i got to say it. Notice that he says the main point of what I am saying. Not writing, saying. That's more evidence here that this passage was a sermon that was first preached. He is speaking this to a congregation. And maybe somebody is writing it down and taking copious notes. And that's how it became the book of Hebrews that we have in our Bibles today. But this is a spoken message. And let me just, while I'm here, put in a little plug for the value of a a spoken ministry, of of speaking God's word. Of course, books are good. I mean, think of Paul's letters. And and Paul, even when he was in prison, asked that books be brought to them. We can learn a lot from books, and we're always giving away books here. But there's value in hearing God's word preached to you. Well, enough of that. I'm getting off track. The main point is that Jesus is our high priest, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. In other words, Jesus, our high priest, right now is in the presence of God, the holy place. He is seated there. We'll see why that's important later. The ESV is a good translation. That's what's in front of you if you have the the Pew Bible. Um, Because it reflects the Greek in stressing that we're talking about the quality of this person. We have such a high priest. This is the quality of what he's like. And, And what is his quality? It's in that he is in heaven. He is in the true tent. He is in the holy place. The location of the priest is what is all important. We have such a high priest who is in such a place. And then we learn in verse 3 that it is the job of a high priest to make gifts and sacrifices. That is what priests do. In other words, the priest's job, we, we read this in the Old Testament, is to do something in the presence of God to make God appeased so that he will accept the people and to make the people holy and acceptable before God. The priest is the mediator who comes between God and man to make the people able to come to God. And he does that by offering gifts and sacrifices. So also, Jesus, if he is to be a priest, has to have something to offer. 
Okay, now look at verse 4. And here, here is where I personally run into a bit of trouble in understanding the passage. I confess what, when I was studying this passage, I had assumed, based upon what he said so far, that the preacher was drawing a contrast between the once-for-all offering of Christ and what the priests would sacrifice on a, on a daily basis. That's what, what I kind of assumed. And then I sort of racked my, you know, hit, banged my head against the wall for a while, trying to understand how verse 4, about how if he was on earth, he would not be a priest, fit into that assumption. And it didn't seem to fit very well. But then I remembered, and I can be dense too, just like the disciples, right? The main point of what he is saying is about where the priest is. That's the main point. We have a priest in heaven. So what the author here is doing is he's drawing a contrast between the ongoing ministry of the priests on earth, which were operative in the time that the the preacher is giving the sermon. There were priests in Jerusalem making sacrifices. So the author is drawing a contrast between the ongoing ministry of those priests on earth and the ongoing ministry of Jesus in heaven. And he's showing us that the high priest ministry of Jesus is superior to that ministry of the priest on earth. Now, it's not that Jesus' once-for-all death on the cross is irrelevant. It's actually really important. And we see that in verse 1, in that word seated. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Now, it would strike anybody who is deeply familiar with the Old Testament as very odd. Because nowhere in the whole Old Testament is there a category for a ministering priest to sit down. If you read about the temple, there's a lot of things in the temple. There is no chair. Because the priest never sat down. In fact, we see in the the author of Hebrews, a little bit later on in the book, he says that day after day, every priest stands to minister and offer again and again the same sacrifices which can never take away sin, But when this priest, he's talking now about Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see the contrast? The priest of old could never sit down because their sacrifices were never sufficient. So they always had to do more and more and more, and they were never done. But Jesus offers himself as the final sacrifice for sin that is wholly sufficient, and then he sits down. Because his job of sacrificing for sin is done. It is finished, was his cry from the cross. But the thing is, even after he sits down at the right hand of God, he still has a lot of work to do. Because now, having made the full sufficient payment for sins, his job now is to intercede for his own people. His gifts and sacrifices are his prayers of intercession. On the basis of his once-for-all sacrifice for sin, he now asks the Father to send his people the Holy Spirit. He asks the Father to forgive their sins. He asks the Father that those who are his may be with him where he is to see his glory. So friends, now do you see why it is good for you that Jesus has gone away? Unless there be any any 
doubt of the value of Christ being in heaven, the preacher then makes an argument from the Old Testament as to why it's better that Jesus is where he is. Look there at verse 5. You see the, the preacher takes us all the way back, chapter 8, verse 5, all the way, he takes us all the way back to the first construction of a place of worship in the Old Testament. And that was when the people were taken out of Egypt. God had commissioned that Moses would oversee the building of the first place of worship, the, the tabernacle. Now, this is the very first place of worship that's, that God has commissioned. It would be logical to think that that first place of worship would be the original, right? And then all the other places of worship that would come after it would be copies. Well, well not so. Verse 5 tells us that the Old Testament priests serve a copy and shadow. The, the, the priests that were on earth Their temple was but a copy and a shadow of the true place where Christ was. Because when that very first uh, tabernacle was established, it was made to reflect the true temple in heaven. So the very first place of worship was just a copy and a shadow of the true place where Jesus is. That doesn't mean that the place of worship that Moses constructed was fake or untrue. No, it had its place. It was a placeholder to be there until there was one who was able to go up into the true place of worship, the true temple, and that is Jesus. The Old Testament priests could never do that. They did not have the right character, nor did they have the right sacrifices. But Jesus did. He is God and man, and he offers himself as the full payment for sin. And now he is in the throne room of the presence of God. Friends, if you're a believer in Christ, your priest is there right now making intercession for you. He is praying for you. He is watching over you. He is guarding you. He is protecting you from falling away. He is keeping you from the evil one. He is watching over you for your good. Friends, how does it feel knowing that we have a high priest such as this. Friends, do you see why now it is to your advantage that he would go away? You know, the people who heard this sermon first preached, they needed to hear this because they were tempted to forsake Christ and go back to the the priests on earth. The priests on earth had a certain appeal to them. Because if you read the Old Testament, they, were, they got dressed up in this spectacular uniform. And people were playing clothes all the time. So that had to have some sort of a draw, right? And then the place where they would, would do these gifts and sacrifices, it was, it was in a temple where nearly everything was overlaid with gold. It looked impressive. It looked like it had weight to it. It looked real. On the other hand, the, the believers in Christ... They met to worship in in people's houses. They didn't look very impressive. They would sing a few songs together. They would hear God's word read and then hear, hear it explained. All of that would not have seemed to, on the surface, had nearly the, the gravitas as the, the Old Testament temple. And on top of that, if the people 
the, the believers, that they were being persecuted for being Christians, and all they had to do was just revert back to the Old Testament system and the persecution would stop. So why not go back to these old priests? Well, the, the author is here. He's trying to reorient their minds for them. And he's trying to say, you want to know where to look for impressive worship? For something that has weight and majesty to it? Don't look here on earth. Look, look to the place where actually you can't see. Look to heaven where your priest sits right now. Up there is the worship that is infinitely impressive. Up there is the worship that has gravity and majesty. The so-called worship that was going on in the temple was just a copy and shadow of the true above. And it was obsolete and growing old and ready to vanish away. And friends, we need to hear this too. Because, if we're honest, we might not look very impressive as we're gathered here today. Our building is not overlaid with gold. And I'm not up here wearing a very impressive outfit. At least, I don't think so. In fact, I'm not a priest at all. That's actually important for us, that, that I am not a priest. A priest is someone who has special authority to bring the people to God by virtue of his person, because of his unique calling as a person. My only authority comes from explaining God's Word to you. But see, we don't need a building that looks majestic by earthly standards. We don't need a priest on earth because we have a priest in heaven. The best priest one could ever ask for. And he is doing his priestly work for us right now. So, so here's one clear application for us. And that is, let us not forsake Christ for more impressive forms of worship that appeal to things in this physical world. Here's what I mean. I remember somebody telling me, sitting in my living room, telling me this story about how for a while he was led astray by a particular church, actually a particular pastor, because that pastor was, was always like flashing wads of cash around. He was even giving cash to, to visitors of the church. thought maybe I could go there. I mean, no, ethically, it probably wouldn't be good, right? And, and this person was telling me the story of how initially he was so taken in because he had grown up without much money. And just the, the fact that this pastor had so much money about him was impressive. The pastor also drove expensive cars and wore expensive suits. And the pastor taught the people that the blessings would flow from him to the people. So the pastor taught them, you want me to be wealthy? Because that will benefit you. See what he's doing there? He's putting himself in the place of their priest. And he's making himself quite wealthy in the process. Friends, don't be led astray by churches and ministries that would do that. Don't be led astray by anyone who would compete with Christ for priesthood. I've also heard people tell me that they really want a form of worship that appeals to their senses. So they find a priest who, who does wear religiously looking clothes and who douses people with holy water and, and comes in a cloud of smoke and incense. I heard people tell me that they, they need those things to worship God because it makes Jesus seem more present. And even some churches believe that when you actually take the Lord's Supper, you're, you're eating the body and blood of Jesus, the, the physical presence of Jesus. But the book of Hebrews will tell us 
that the real way to worship Jesus is not to make him physically present, but to recognize he is physically absent for our good. He is in heaven, and that's where we want him until he returns. So friends, let us not be led astray by any form of ministry that would try to lead us to a priest other than the one who is in heaven. Now, to see how Jesus' absence makes him a better priest, we have to move on to our next point, which is that he brings us a better covenant. So he's a better priest because he's in heaven, and because he's a better priest in heaven, he is able to bring us a better covenant. This is point number two. Now, you might not be familiar with the word covenant. Well, it's basically just God's arrangement for how he will relate to his people, to, to the world. A covenant is God's plan for how we can live in obedience to him and peace with him. Why do we need a covenant? Well, because God is so far, uh, is so much different than we are. God is all-powerful. All things in existence depend upon God for their existence. So we can't know God as we know another object in the world. We can only know God if he condescends, that is, if he comes down and reveals himself to us in a way that we can understand on our level. A covenant is when God reveals himself to us in our own terms, and he reveals the terms by which we will know him. The other thing that is is part of a covenant is how the problem of, of sin is solved. You see, we have lived in such a way that displeases God. So the covenant, the arrangement for how we know God, must account for how our sins are to be forgiven. Otherwise, God will judge us. Otherwise, our relationship with God will be one of condemnation. So we need a covenant. Now look there at verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the, notice the word, covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So Christ, as he sits at the right hand of God, is mediating, that is, he's bringing down to us a better covenant. And it's better because it has better promises. And now here, the author pulls in another argument from the Old Testament. Look there at verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Will prayed about this earlier. And then it says, For he finds fault with them when he says, and then he goes on to quote Jeremiah 31, the passage that, that Will read earlier. And Lord willing, we'll look at that passage in more detail next week. But that passage talks about God making a new covenant with his people, not like the covenant that he made with them when he with their ancestors when he took them out of Egypt. The covenant that he had made with their ancestors was true in the sense that it revealed God's character. It showed the people what God's standard for holiness was like, but it was lacking. It didn't really change the people at the most fundamental level so they could actually be holy, so that it could actually be good. And the people didn't keep the covenant, so God had to abandon them. God cannot dwell with an unholy people. God gave them the law. He told them what to do, but they didn't do it. And so he had to leave the people to their own devices. He had to separate himself from the people. 
But even as God leaves them, notice here, He promises them a new beginning. This is not the ultimate end. For He will establish a new covenant in which He forgives their sins. And He writes the law upon their heart. In other words, He has a plan for a way of relating to the people where He doesn't simply restrain their behavior with some outward cause to morality and some sense of guilt motivating them to do better. He wants to write His character on their hearts. He wants to be their God and them to be His people. And this better covenant is founded upon better promises. And those better promises are founded upon the better mediator. Christ dies to forgive our sins. His once-for-all death on the cross is the reason why our sins can be remembered no more. And His being raised to new life and then sitting at the Father's right hand is the reason why God's law can be written on our hearts because He sends His Holy Spirit into our hearts to change us at the most fundamental level so we actually love His Word. The people back then needed to hear it, hear this truth because they were tempted to revert back to the Old Testament system. And he, the, 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 the preacher here is, is pointing out the contradiction of going back to the Old Testament system when the Old Testament system points to the new. If you want to worship God according to the Old Testament, you trust in Christ. Because the Old Testament speaks of Christ. Because the Old Testament speaks of the inadequacy of the old and the promise of the new. And friends, we need to hear this too. So that we worship Christ as the real substance of everything. We need to worship Christ as the one through whom we have forgiveness of sins and new life. Friends, I wonder, as we talk about forgiveness of sins and a new heart, does that, does that make you excited? Or are you actually distracted by something else? Something that, well, for your mind in the moment is more important to you than forgiveness of sins and new life. Friends, doesn't that distraction reveal a problem in your heart? What would it look like for you, if what the Bible said was most important, namely that forgiveness of sins and new life, what would it look like if that was really most important to you now? Well, friends, if your heart is not warmed by these things, the solution is to come to Christ. And He can give you a new heart. All the promises to be good or to be committed to morality cannot change your heart. They cannot make you want what is right. Well, come to Jesus so that he can change your heart. Friends, we also need to hear this because it is too easy for us to return to a law-based system in our relationship with God. You know, the natural way that we try to relate to God, the default setting in our heart for, for how we know Him, is to try to earn our way to Him. And then the only way to cover over the things that we've done wrong, the things that we're ashamed of, is to try to do other things that we're proud of that we can sort of offer up in, those, in, our, in the place of the things that, that we're ashamed of. But this approach doesn't work because our guilt is still there. And you know what? If we're doing good works just to sort of appease our guilt, then, then those works are not really good. They're, they're efforts of self-promotion. And when this law-based approach doesn't work, the only recourse we have is to just try harder and throw ourselves even more into morality. So, so maybe if it's not working, then you need to get an accountability partner. Or maybe you need to write everything down that you're, you're thinking 
Or maybe you need to get up earlier and pray for two hours rather than one hour. Or maybe you need a more disciplined Bible study program. Please understand, all those things aren't bad. Yes, pray a lot. And oh, please, devour the Bible as if it's life to you in your quiet times. But don't do that with a sense of priestly guilt that in, in, offering, in performing these actions, you're, you're somehow appeasing God or, or offering something to God. Do it instead out of the confidence that in Christ, your ultimate priest, he has done everything to cover your sin and give you all you need. And then boldly come before him for him to give you mercy and grace in your time of need. Friends, Christ is the perfect high priest because he understands your temptations. We read that earlier in the book of Hebrews. There's not a temptation that you've experienced that Christ can't look at and say, yep, I know how that feels. So when we come to him with our temptations and our struggles, he doesn't laugh at us. He understands. But he is also perfect. And therefore, he was able to offer the perfect sacrifice to cover over our sins all those times we we fall into temptation. And he is also God. So he rightfully sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. That's his place. That's where he belongs. And he is asking God. He is using his status before God to ask him to send you help in your time of need. Oh, friends, we also need to understand this when we're discouraged. When we, when we are so tempted to look to a, a fix in our circumstances to make everything right. Oh, there's a sense in which our hope does entirely depend upon our circumstances. Our hope entirely depends upon the circumstances of there being Christ, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Our hope depends upon that circumstance, And that's the circumstance we need in order to have hope. But friends, guess what? That is exactly the circumstance that we have. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And he is mediating to us a new covenant, a better covenant. And so that's all that matters. So friends, I ask you, what circumstances has more weight in your life? More more importance in your mind? What what set of circumstances gets more airtime in your thinking? Is it what Christ has done and what he is now doing? Or is it the discouragements you're experiencing at work? Or the the frustrations in a particular relationship? Or or the difficulties you're having in school? What set of circumstances is most important to you? Well, friends, we have the best circumstances in the world. Why don't we pay more attention to them? Why don't we, as the author of Hebrews says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the high priest and apostle of our confession? Well, I think we see here that it is to our advantage that Jesus is not here physically with us. He is in heaven, interceding for us, mediating to us the new covenant that can give us hope. But one day he will return. And then we will truly know him and truly see him. All that we had known about him by faith, about him sitting at the right hand of God and interceding for us, and the the majesty and glory that he has, all of that we will see and know and spend an eternity appreciating. Let's pray.